everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Reading Party Podcast with Megan and Lexi. This episode continues our season looking at modern retellings of the Iliad and the Odyssey, ancient epics known for both brutal violence and instances of sexual assault. This episode is not suitable for under-18s. We hope you have your favourite beverage and snack ready to go, because we've got our teas and are ready to start spilling the tea on our latest ancient story. Hello. I, I, I am excited about this. I was going to say, so I want to let everyone know that I have uh, already both read and listened to the audiobook version of A Thousand Ships, and it's one of my favorite things. It's probably top three favorite things to read. So I want to know, what did you think of the first half? Excellent. Absolutely excellent. Again, kind of like Wrath Goddess, I went in with a couple of expectations, but not an awful lot. I hadn't like done a, re- a bunch of research about like how the book's written, what is it, what it's about beyond, you know, the Trojan War. Um, so opening up with the muse, Calliope, like essentially complaining about Odysseus, which not Odysseus, Homer. Sorry, it's been a morning. Complaining about Homer was fantastic. Beautiful opening. And it just kind of got better. And it's it's a wonderful book. It's really wonderful. And again, like with Wrath Goddess, Natalie Haynes clearly has done ton of research, ton of research. And then you, I again didn't do any reading prior to this, but then I like went and googled her. And obviously, she's been a classicist for forever. I think she started learning Latin in year age eleven, which is like British just starting secondary school um so clearly this is a thing that she's been doing for at least all of her adult life and apparently most of her like teenage years as well and it's it's fantastic it's so imaginative and her writing is so funny and again you do research and she was a stand-up comic for 10 years and you're like oh okay that makes a whole ton of sense no love it absolutely love it beautiful and it's i like um each each chapter for those who haven't read it each chapter is telling the story from the perspective of a different woman or different group of women who are involved somehow in the trojan war and you've got like the trojan women who are like the royal family who are obviously there and then you've got letters from penelope to odysseus and um the experiences of um paris's wife whose name i i just cannot pronounce um onoi maybe oinoni oinoni thank you there's a handy dandy pronunciation guide at the beginning which i did look at several times and then completely forgot obviously um and with her like she's not she's not there but what is happening is obviously deeply personal to her and like affects her life and her her son in a way that like you you probably don't really think about and you don't get a picture of in other adaptations and and retellings and no it's beautiful and i love also the way that it kind of jumps around the timeline 
so it, it like the first like the trojan the first trojan woman chapter is like all of the trojan women stuff is after the fall of troy it, it's what happens to the women following that and you kind of get their relationships as seen through the lens of defeat and um the reality of being sold or not sold but captured and, and taken into slavery and servitude and then you've got thetis's wedding and the the golden apple episode that kind of jumps you all the way right back to the beginning and no i love it absolutely love it and having it in these like discrete little chapters because some of the chapters especially the the stuff with calliope 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 the muse whose name like we've established i can't speak greek so that's that's fine at this point but her chapters are like one or two pages maybe and then you have slightly longer chapters and it's it's really easy to kind of read a segment and if you need to put it down you can but you don't have to and i kind of read most of the first half last night because it was just so good so no it's amazing. I'm. I can't believe it's taken me this long to read it. To be fair, I had not uh, read it either until I kind of. I got like a kick in the pants because like I I had to. Um, I was asked to interview her about this book, and mm -hmm. so I was like, "Oh crap! I need to read it." So um, <laughs> I did also have to read it under like time constraints, but. I read it in print the first time, but then I discovered that Natalie herself reads the audiobook version. And I mean, I can't say enough good things. I mean, it is perfectly read. I, I love her voice for it. And she pronounces all the names for me, so I don't have to. So, and, and it's funny because she pronounces it in the British way. So half of these, like, I have the, the very British like way of, of saying it like in my head at any given time knowing that's not how i would pronounce it naturally so for those wondering in the audiobook she does actually pronounce it calliope which is funny because you know i would say calliope but that doesn't sound anywhere near as um nice you know so um so yeah no i'm i love the short segments I love the jumping of the timelines but within all of this did you have uh, like a standout or a favorite um you know character woman that we visited so far that's difficult to say i'm gonna start with one and then i will have a think because my first okay. one is kind of a, a cheat i really enjoy that even though they're very short i very much have enjoyed calliope's segments mm -hmm. i like it, it feels like she's kind of standing in for the author's voice mm -hmm. and there's a good amount of kind of not quite berating Homer, but criticizing him internally for not understanding that his epic, even though he wants this like grand heroic adventure, his epic is not because the way Calliope sees epic working is as a myriad of little tragedies. And that is a fantastic description for what you get in the book, at least the first half. And I, I assume it just continues as awesomely as it starts out, but that's what you get. It's a hundred little mini tragedies from every woman whose life has been impacted by this. And I think Calliope does, or Natalie through Calliope does a fantastic job of kind of explaining why this is important and why these women's stories need to be told because the men's story is absolutely everywhere. And I, I read an interview with Natalie after I, I read the first half of this, and I, actually it's the one that you sent me um, about her upcoming book on Medusa. She said, she said as much, she said, look, 
the men, the men's stories are everywhere. And for Medusa as well, we know what happened with Perseus. It's, it's, we know it. Medusa, much more interesting, but not spoken about nearly as much, which gives an awful lot of freedom for a writer with what you do with the story. And while this book, while Thousand Ships is very much rooted in the plethora of source material there is about the Iliad, it's very, um, it felt very personal. It felt very um, like real and true, and and it, it yeah, it was very very good. But I I really liked Calliope's kind of framing of the narrative and and what's going on. Uh, how about yeah. you? Who's your favorite? Well, I will just add because I do love Calliope and Calliope. So for those who don't have the physical book um, or just who haven't read it, um, the chapters are basically by name, not really number. So. You know, it's kind of hard to be like this exact chapter unless you're counting. But one of the Calliope chapters, she literally starts off by being very cross with Homer, where she's like, no, I don't want to sing for you. I don't want to do this. I don't want to say this. And I love the certain chapter where she talks about um, all casualties of war it, having to include women because um, there's this one point where she it's kind of a takeoff on the original you know sing news and then she's like no you want me to sing about this man and uh, his tragedy and then um, she kind of goes off on this tirade about how uh, when you look at war uh, all the casualties have to be included including women and how um, like killing on the battlefield is not the only thing that makes a tragedy the lives of those women captured also is a tragedy so i loved that chapter i think i think the next calliope segment i think she says why is it that anoni anoni that her act of of raising a son how is that less heroic than what any of the men do on the battlefield which i i enjoyed that i thought that was that yeah was nice uh, so I mean, she's, I mean, I, I just love how, yes, this book basically is told through the eyes of Calliope, but um, I would say for the first half, um, there are two chapters that stand out for different reasons. Mm. One is, I think, the the second chapter, which is Creusa. It's one of the longer chapters in the entire book, and it's this really harrowing um, retelling of sort of Creusa's courtship um, with Aeneas and how... Uh, you know, she felt, um, it basically retells the night that Troy burned. And what you get is, like, her fleeing the house, her talking about looking for Aeneas, looking for his father, looking, you know, oh, he's not with me, he's being a dutiful son, and he's attending to mm -hmm. his father. And how she talks about, you know, well, we have a son, but I don't really know where he is either. Mm -hmm. And it's basically her running around a burning Troy trying to find her way out and for those who have read the the Aeneid at least you know that she perishes in the fire um, so she doesn't make it out um, and it's it's interesting because the book doesn't really make it clear that you know she clearly dies so it's it's a very harrowing chapter because of what I felt was like the the, the great detail she put into describing a burning Troy mm -hmm. and all of her feelings toward her husband and yeah it was such a standout chapter I really liked the decision to open have that the first like major chapter mm -hmm. start at the end of mm -hmm. the epic 
Mm-hmm. I just, I really enjoyed that. I thought that was very clever. Yeah. I mean, you know what's going to be a good one. It's one of the longer ones. I will say, because of my circumstances of being in Greece, I'm listening to the audiobook. So uh, everyone will have to forgive me if my references of segments are a bit different. But when I'm listening to the audiobook version, that very first segment, it's like 40 minutes compared to like all the other segments are like under five minutes um, or something around there. So uh, you knew it's going to be good. And then the other segment that really stood out to me that I love is the goddess chapter where you have these where you have these very playful goddesses and it's retelling essentially the contest um for who wins the golden apple that starts everything so having now looked at the goddesses in uh, wrath goddess i was very excited to talk to you about the differences so like what did you think about the characterization that nadley has on them here versus how maya did it that i feel like the the goddesses in thousand ships are much more in line with maybe what we would expect from like greek deities just in like popular culture and popular imagination having said that they're very very well written and there mm-hmm. are some little like personality quirks that you don't get in other places like aphrodite is my god she's a bitch <laughs> like mm-hmm. absolute mm-hmm. bitch and it, it fits with excuse me, like, like how her, her character is written. And you can, you can really see that working for the goddess of, of like love and sex. And Athena is, she was surprising, actually. I think she was the most surprising for me. Paris describes her with like a girl next door, like physical appearance, like you've always admired her and you just, you just really want to be good enough for her. And suddenly he felt like he really wanted to be good enough. And I was like, it fits with Athena, right? It's not the like the stoic strong warrior that we we kind of see elsewhere she's like she's kind of like a kid but she's a like frighteningly intelligent capable kid but the the description of her at the beginning of the chapter is that i get the feeling she wears her helmet and her armor and carries her spear like to make herself taller they say she's got the helmet on to to make herself taller but I think to like force people to take her seriously, you kind of get the impression that she doesn't feel like she would maybe be taken as seriously as the other goddesses if she did not present herself in this way. It was it was very very good, and the squabble between the three of them was fantastic. It was absolutely like none of them have any idea what this apple is. They just all know that they want it, and then of course because of the inscription, they want it even more. But no, it was. It was good. And you're right, very, very different to the Wrath Goddesses. The goddesses in in Thousand Ships are much more human. You kind of which is kind of how they come across in Greek myths. Like they're a human like a larger than life human family who just so happen to have magical powers and live forever. So they, they they're not as scary, they're not they're not as unnerving, but you you do see like the power and the kind of capricious vindictiveness. Um, and at the end of at the end of the chapter after Paris has chosen Aphrodite, I, I can't remember which goddess says you didn't mention to him that Helen's already married. And she's like, well, he's already married anyway. It doesn't really matter, does it? Yeah, that that tracks. H- how about you? What what did you think of the, the differences? 
I mean, okay, maybe I'm a little biased because I had the opportunity to interview Natalie not only once but twice uh, an episode of my other podcast, Ancient Office Hours. Um, I talked to her about her choices, and we talked about the goddesses actually in that one. So uh, if you want uh, to listen to that conversation, it's fantastic, and I highly recommend it. Yeah, no, I, I really like how playful they are. We at some point had a conversation about how we really did think of them as, uh, you know, they're not so different from us. They're just... Um, yeah, they're, they're a bit larger than life. They have these magical powers, but like at the end of the day, it is, you know, whatever it is. But I loved, I do love how playful um, Natalie wrote the goddesses. I mean, and and that and goes with, you know, Natalie just being a former comedian. She's very, very funny, very witty herself. So it totally makes sense that she wrote her goddesses that way. But I love the, the, the petulance um, and... You know, at, at one point in the contest, um, when when Paris is like trying to judge it, uh, I it's so funny because at one point uh, the goddesses, when they start making offers and saying, "Oh, Paris will we'll give you this. You will have this if you choose me." Um, it's so funny when it gets to the Athena part. She's just like, yeah, I will give you wisdom, and you'll have the all-seeing owl, and this, that, and the other thing. And then he looks at her owl, and she just goes. You cannot have my owl. No, that is mine. Yeah, she's like, yes, she's like, no, 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 we will get you a different one. But uh, no, this is mine. And so just like the, the wittiness of that line. And it, and it's so funny because when Natalie reads it, she reads it with all the like sarcasm you would expect. And it's glorious because she's like, you cannot have my owl. And you're just like, I'm, I'm like crying with laughter. So, um, it's fantastic. I liked I liked also in that in that scene having Paris's inner monologue because you get what he thinks of each goddess and how he's like swayed by their different offers. Um and at one point he's he's talking or he's thinking about Hera and he like thinks to himself like look cuz they've they're all completely naked at this point and they're like choose me choose me. And he's like looking at Hera thinking I can't believe Zeus cheated on her once, but multiple times. And there's a line in there that says, like, he even even in like his um, struck as he was by her beauty, he thought that maybe this was not a wise thing to say. Uh, like something in her eyes told him that she would not take that compliment the way that it was intended. I'm like, no, you don't. There are some things you do not mention to her, and her husband's infidelities are like top of the list, really. But that was it. Was just funny. Yeah. No, well, and let's talk for a minute since you mentioned it. They're all naked. Well, it didn't start out that way. They went, you know, fully gowned. But then it was so funny because when they were making their offers uh, at some point, um, you know, Aphrodite being the bitchy person she is, she was just like, it would be a good idea. I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to use every advantage I have. So she actually takes off her gown. And then you get this great line. I think it's an inner monologue of Athena where she's like, are we are we really doing this? Are we are we really sinking to this level? And then she's like, "Fine, I guess I will." And then and then and so she like real, out of reluctance is like stripping. And then and then you get more of this inner monologue where she was like talking about comparing standing next to Aphrodite, where she's like, "Well, now I don't feel, you know, like." good about myself she's just like she's like of course she's prettier than i am and she's more whatever and so she's like no i just feel weird <laughs> and i was like oh poor thing yeah so the childish goddesses i i love the differences i mean i think 
you know, with Wrath God, with something like Wrath Goddess, I think you you need the gods to be these superhuman, super powerful, super scary things. But I really liked this this humanizing aspect of it. Um, it it works really well. It was unexpected, but it was so welcome. I I really just I loved everything about it. We should we should talk about um like how Paris and Helen come across. I know we haven't obviously finished it but i feel like the paris and helen here are again different to every other paris and helen we've seen what did you think of them i think it's funny because you um so helen really she doesn't get a section to herself which i think was an interesting choice natalie mm -hmm. made that i don't want to have helen have her own section that mm -hmm. would be too i don't know cliche obvious, easy yeah. obvious whatever so what you get is you hear accounts of her from other people. You get it from the Trojan women. There's that great section in Creusa, which is why I love it so much. Like chapter two, Creusa goes on this like thing where she starts talking about, was hers the face that really launched a thousand ships? She was like, yeah, she was pretty and all, but like she wouldn't be worth going to war for. They, ca they came for the land and the gold and yeah, it was a, a convenient excuse. Yeah, and she basically has... Like, she has this monologue being like, yeah, Helen's decent and all, but, like, nah, man, I wouldn't start a war. Mm -hmm. And um, just, like, the believability of it. Um, yeah, so uh, Creusa talking smack about Helen I found really entertaining. And, and she just doesn't make her seem very likable. She was mm -hmm. kind of just like, she just left. Okay, fine. That was really fun. Um, what about you? I think this is the first adaptation we've looked at where Helen is actually blamed by someone like held responsible for the war I mean it comes across a little bit in Troy fall of a city but it's not it doesn't it didn't feel as strong watching that as reading this and it it came with the section of uh, with uh, Creusa but also uh, the Trojan women section like none of them except Andromache interestingly none of them like her they blame it entirely on her it sounds like they blamed it on her from the very beginning so that that's a good contrast with Troy, uh, Fall of a City because at the beginning everyone was very happy and they like welcomed her as like some kind of like female liberation thing but in um, Thousand Ships it's very much why are you here and oh my god, now we have to deal with all of these Greeks on our beach. Like, why did you do this? And it was very interesting, the explanation Helen gives for that, because it is an actual explanation. It's not this star-crossed lovers thing that we've seen in um, in the movie, and a little bit in Fall of a City. It's, it's not that. It is, essentially, I was forced to by Aphrodite, because she, like, like gave me tinnitus I, I all i could hear was this high-pitched squealing wailing sound and the only time it relented was when i was with paris so my choice was live with this sound for the rest of my life or go with this dude that the goddess essentially told me i had to go with and um hecuba's response is well you maybe the sound would have gone away like really and i did enjoy helen's response to that which was look it's not my fault you never taught your son to say no or never or never said no to him um that was i liked the characterization there of paris as like a spoiled spoiled princeling and that comes across in a couple of the chapters like he's he's never been told no he's been indulged far too much and again that that section of the trojan women 
he never it sounds like he never actually took responsibility for what happened it wasn't his fault he was just he saw something and he took it and that's what he's been taught to do his whole life and really the fault was menelaus for having such a bizarre response i mean who does that who goes to war because someone steals your wife really it, it it's a thing that happens and then in oinoni's chapter where he like crawls back to her because she can heal him she's a nymph she's got like magical powers like i'm on my knees please heal me and she said you're on your knees for yourself you're not on your knees because you feel bad about anything that happened. I am not going to help you. Um, and I thought that was like a really good um, response because he's abandoned her. He's abandoned her son. He didn't even tell her that he wasn't coming back. He's like, I'm going to go and confront my parents. And then she finds out months later from a, like what a tradesman or someone like passing through mentions, oh, by the way, Paris is in Troy with a new wife. And she's just, what? My husband is not coming back then. We have, like, we have a son. And he's just abandoned me. Um, I, this is the only point I feel in Paris's life where he's actually been held accountable, properly accountable um, for his, his crimes. So I felt these two were, even in the very brief glimpses that we get of them, compared to, say, the movie, the Brad Pitt movie, they're much more fully fleshed out characters. There is backstory and reason and motive behind what they're doing. In Paris's case, it's because he's a spoiled brat who was never told no. In Helen's case, it was like kind of really her only viable option. And she just kind of went and, and tried to make the best of a bad lot. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, yeah, the Oinoni chapter was... Um so interesting also just because like it's not in the original source material in the iliad uh we get it in other sources which you know but um yeah no because it shocks me it, i don't know why but it, it definitely shocks me that like a lot of people just like didn't know that she was a character a person and they didn't know that like paris was married before all of this when he was trying to be a simple shepherd um so i did love her chapter i mean there's so many i love um but one I really wanted to uh, bring attention to was uh, I'm, I'm curious what you think of the very unique and different way that um, Natalie chose to do the Penelope sections because that's like different from everything, everything else. It's a narrative. It's a narrative. It's a first person narrative of them going through these scenarios. So yeah let's talk about penelope i so the the penelope sections are are letters to odysseus and i really liked them and i thought they worked very well they bring you out of the narrative obviously because it's such a, a change in style but i think it gives a very good like, feeling of distance and separation that you know is there between penelope and odysseus because it takes him he's at troy for 10 years and then it takes him another 10 years to get home so you have penelope like writing to him about how clever it was for him to try and pretend he was mad and not be taken to Troy in the first place. And then there's a letter kind of with her just talking to him about the trials he's going through on his Odyssey home. I do love how unique it is. I thought the letters were such an amazing touch just because it's different. Like, I can't tell you how many times I've heard the Odyssey as a classicist, as just someone who 
casually loves Greek stories and mythologies, but to have this when it came out in 2020 be the first time that you have something written directly from Penelope and not just some dramatic thing of her just being like, oh no, my husband is gone. Because usually when you do get anything about her, it's always in the context of the suitors. So you, you, you basically just get what you get from the Odyssey. So any other representation I think that I've seen or read or heard or whatever, it's always her her struggle with the suitors, her struggle with Telemachus because he wants to go, you know, oppose the suitors, but he wants to find his father and he wants to do this, that, and the other thing. And all you hear is, you know, some sort of, woe is me, I'm, you know, the dutiful wife, and he's just gone, and I'm doing my duty. That gets a little tiring. It, it's, it's, it's tired for me. Like, like, I'm just like, nah, something new. So the fact that this was like something really new and, and it gives her a personality back because I feel like other representations, she has no personality beyond I'm a dutiful wife and I miss him, but he's gone for 20 years and I don't know what to do. So I'm just gonna weave and be like the original sad girl. You know, it's like, Okay, so yeah, to get her and have her be bitingly witty and funny. I was going to say, there's such a good dose of humor in there. It's just, it's so full of personality. I loved it. Yeah. So yeah, no, t for me t to have this and her be anything but the original sad girl, I was so excited. I was like, yes, we finally have something that like makes her into a fully realized three-dimensional character because she's so used to being... Mm third fiddle to everything else um mm -hmm. and i do like how it's letters too because it it allows her the freedom to sign them in like a she can be sad she can be funny she can be pissed off i don't know yeah it just it to me it makes her more well-rounded no i agree it was excellently done and i'm i'm interested to see um where particularly the Trojan women story goes, how that evolves, because um, you've got such a wide range of characters in that one story thread, and they're all dealing with this very, very differently. And can I just say, I do not like Hecuba. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> She's mean. She's, and it's such a contrast coming from Troy Fall of a City where she's like everyone's mother and essentially falls on her sword when her husband dies. And here it's just, she's, I mean, understandably bitter and grief-stricken having lost almost all of her children, but she's awful to Cassandra, just horrific. And then obviously mean to Helen because it's Helen's fault that the war happened and no one wants her there anyway. And and then you've got Andromache, who's just kind of being stoic. And yeah, I'm interested to see what happens with them. I wanted to ask you, how did what did you think of the uh, Briseis and Chryseis chapter? Because that also is one of the longer ones. Yeah, I think um, that was probably one of my least favorites. Ooh, it was okay. still well written, but Chryseis, I mean, she's a child, right? So it's written from a very childish perspective and she sneaks out of the city at night to see her boyfriend and then the boyfriend gets killed and then 
she kind of just goes with the Greeks because going with them seems like a better chart like a better plan than yelling and having her dad be super mad at her that she snuck out and I'm like yeah you're you are an actual child I think on a personal level she just irritated me a little bit I did like how she kind of described the Greeks you get a very good sense of who Agamemnon is a good sense of who Achilles is um and she has like a, can we say a crush on Briseis? Is that a reasonable thing? I would, I would say so. I, 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 I it comes across as a crush. Briseis was a good, a really cool character. I enjoyed her. Um, she's <sighs> tragic, which sounds like it's a really stupid thing to say. That like it's a a book of tragedy, but she feels particularly tragic in a way that I, I'm not sure the others do yet. Um, because I think she, well, you have this great scene where she's essentially arguing with Patroclus, who's like, have you always looked this sad? And she looks at him like, fucking moron. My entire family has died or been killed. Tell me, should I be looking happy right now? And he's like, no, no, no. What I mean is like, you look beautiful when you're sad. Have you always just looked sad? What a fucking stupid question to ask a woman. I'm just, you're a moron. I don't like Patroclus in this at all. I don't like Achilles either, but Patroclus is just dumb idiot. And yeah, he frustrated me. And Agamemnon also, horrible person. I mean, it's so different, right? Coming from like reading Wrath Goddess not too long ago and having us love Patroclus, mm -hmm. like, just being like, I, you are amazing. To having him be like, yeah, yeah. sort of really dumb and unlikable in this one. A bit that I did enjoy in that that section was Briseis's kind of characterization of Achilles and, and Patroclus when they're walking back to the tent with her. She notices how they're both going out of their way to try and be kind to one another. Mm -hmm. And Patroclus is trying to cheer up Achilles and Achilles is trying to cheer up Patroclus. And she's like, this is super weird. This is so bizarre. I enjoyed that. I felt that was a kind of an innovative way to approach the relationship between the two of them mm -hmm. having it described from someone who is like expecting some kind of toxic masculinity type warrior culture that was that was cool and i liked the little kind of trick achilles and patroclus play on agamemnon so the soldiers have to line the women up in order of most attractive and they put chryseis right at the very front saying that she's the most attractive woman and so Agamemnon obviously chooses her because everyone has declared she is the most attractive. And then Achilles takes Briseis and they're walking back to the Myrmidons camp and Patroclus says, I can't believe Agamemnon didn't choose this woman. She's clearly the most beautiful woman in the history of women. And Achilles kind of grins at him and is like, well, I mean, everyone else decided otherwise. Ha 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 ha. Um, I may have paid the soldiers to change the order of the women because I knew that you wanted this one and I knew that Agamemnon would go with whoever was put first. That was amusing. I did like the section of Briseis when it talks about her crying and the characterization of she had gone so long without crying. I mean, Achilles had killed her mm -hmm. entire family and then it was a sick joke that uh, he chose her. And then she was like, you know, she didn't cry when... Patroclus died even though he eventually sort of had been kind to her and and she even says like yeah he was kind to me so she was like I thought maybe I'd be sad and then she was like she didn't cry and then um yeah I just found it so interesting to have that whole section and then have it end on this like sort of um 
And the way Natalie reads it is just brilliant because it's like finally when Achilles, well, well, she has this sort of monologue about um, when Priam comes to beg for Hector and she was like astounded that this, this cruel warrior that she describes says yes. And then, you know, he, yeah, Hector is returned. And then um, when Achilles finally dies, uh, she is weeping and yet it's not for him. It's literally for everyone else so that was really powerful and to and to have that read to me i was like oh my god uh so i sat with that one for a bit so yeah i, I don't know if brzees and crusades is one of my favorite chapters of the first half because there's so many good ones i will mention one of my favorites is penthesilea because i just am fascinated by penthesilea and we've now seen her in troy fall of the city we, we've had her not ver for very long but we've had her in wrath goddess so what did you think of this particular version of her because she's played on a much more sort of tragically sad no i mean i think in troy fall of the city she's just very aggressive you know i'm out for revenge this one is like very different yeah this so this one her sister, she's accidentally killed her sister and she can't live anymore because it's very nicely described. Her sister is her, like her other half and her other half is no longer here and she doesn't want to be here either. And the best way she can think of to go out is to go and fight Achilles because either she'll kill him and, you know, glory to her as a, an amazing warrior or much more likely she will die and be killed by the most famous warrior in the whole world and, and go and join her sister. And the description leading up to them going to Troy is is very nicely done. You get a really good sense of the relationship between Penthesilea and Hippolyta. And then they, they ride off to Troy and her, her it says that her women are unsure like if she's going if she's going there to die or if she's going there to fight. And it's it, you kind of get the feeling that Penthesilea isn't really sure either either are good options and, and maybe both at the same time and in a similar way to to both plague goddess uh, plague goddess wrath goddess and fall of a city the duel isn't really a duel and in thousand ships you get it told from achilles perspective he's like riding up with his myrmidons and there are all these new warriors like attacking them and he's like who dares to attack my myrmidons because it sounds like no one else is willing to touch them because they're so deadly by this point in, in the battle. And then Penthesilea's horse is taken out and she leaps off and lands on her feet and Achilles is in absolute awe of this, this king, this amazing warrior who can do that. I mean, maybe not in awe, but impressed by. And they lock eyes and Achilles is like, everyone knows this is just going to be a battle between the two of us. And they go and from from how it's written, it's a devastatingly short battle. It doesn't sound like Penthesilea even touches him because Achilles is just so fast. And that's something that's kind of stressed in the narrative a couple of times, exactly how fast he is. He's in, he kills her, he's done. And then he, he sees that this is a woman and she whispers something. And it, like they don't tell you what it is until like right at the very end. Achilles is like sad almost because he feels like he's killed someone like his mirror image he's killed his his double in the way that Penthesilea lost hers in her sister and the chapter ends with him wondering if anyone else has ever said thank you before they die and Penthesilea like that's what she whispered to him thank you because 
that's what she was looking for was was a death so she could join her sister i feel like we got we got a lot more personality in pen Thessalia than previous adaptations even in fall of a city where she gets more screen time you're right she's she's awesome but she's a little one-dimensional there's just like rage that's that's just kind of it there is rage and and she will kill achilles or be killed and and, and this one it's a lot more there's grief there's anger there's um like memories of of how things were with her sister when they were children and there's like flashes of happiness in there and she's a she's a a, a fuller character and obviously in in wrath goddess she's she's relatively inconsequential yeah. i enjoyed that the, the characterization of her um yeah I, th I think that was beautifully written yeah i definitely I definitely agree because I, I mean, look, I, I'm very happy that in Fall of a City they do include her. Um, that's a, that's a, that's an improvement mm -hmm. over the movie <laughs> where she's mm -hmm. you know not a thing. But yeah, no, Just I mean, I think for her, even if she's one dimensional, I think it's it was still fun to see because she still got some of the one of the best lines. Oh, she was in still the great. Entire I, she's still show, for sure fantastic. Yeah, yeah, but it's like. I think, yeah, I mean, they sort of gave her the backstory where they're like, Achilles killed the people she loves. But, like, that doesn't... I mean, as horrible as it is to say, like, in war, yeah, a lot of people die. And so, like, what would separate this Amazon warrior queen from any of the other people... From the other who, ones, yeah. Whose family died at Achilles? I mean, you know, so it's kind of like, well, she's got to have more than that. Um, and the, mm -hmm. the fact that they don't really explain that, yeah, it's a bit lacking. So to have more backstory is, I, is more appreciated for me. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know. I, do you find her more likable, equally as likable, like, or do, or is it just, she's explained, but we don't, she's not a character who's meant to be liked or disliked. It's just kind of like, this is her story. I th I think in in Thousand Ships she is more likable and she's much more sympathetic. I think in Fall of a City she's amazing and awesome and I would not want to meet her in a dark alley. Um but she's not terribly sympathetic. Even even with the Achilles killed everyone I love, even with that. And actually none of the Amazons are. They are like hard warriors and they're kind of the female corollary to like Achilles, mm -hmm. I feel in, in that particular show. Like he's not a terribly sympathetic character either. This is what he does. He kills shit. That's what the Amazons just do. They also kill shit. I, f I felt like in thousands ships there was, she was more human. Maybe mm -hmm. that's a better way to put it. She was more human. Yeah. Yeah. No, I would agree. Um, someone I did also want to mention uh, is uh, we do actually get a chapter on Iphigenia. Um, we've seen her in other adaptations, but not to this extent. So what did you think of her chapter? I think Natalie captured the self-absorption of a 16-year-old girl very, very well. And maybe that's why I dislike Chris Ayers as, as well. They're self-absorbed teenagers. And it comes across in Chris Ayers's chapter. You're like, oh my God, get over yourself. And it's even stronger in Iphigenia's chapter. Um, it's a riot. I mean, 
sounds it's such a bizarre thing to say when you know that she she dies at the end but up until then it's an absolute riot to read because you've got her like preparation for getting married and the journey all the way there and then she's kind of pissed off that there isn't a welcoming committee when they get to the camp and you'd have thought Achilles would present himself officially and she takes her brother uh, she takes Orestes down to the beach so he can play and she's sitting there all prettily and she's she's very attractive and none of the soldiers are even going to say hello to this beautiful princess and how rude of them and just how dare they she was i mean she, she's a 16 year old girl it was perfectly characterized and then it's just there's this looming sense of tragedy because you know what's going to happen and then right at the end she's walking up to the altar and it suddenly clicks in her head she sees achilles isn't there her father has a knife her mother is being held back and there's no wind and she's like well we know what happens when the gods aren't aren't doing what we would like them to do we have a sacrifice and that would be why i'm here and it's not it's not described in detail but it, it feels like she meets her death with a lot of grace and bravery i think in a similar manner to fall of a city there's no struggling there's no begging or pleading it's just this is what's going to happen and i'm going to stand and face it and then you get agamemnon again in a, in a tiny snippet in Chrysaea's story you get agamemnon living with it and seeing how deeply it obviously affected him um but it was it was very well written i wouldn't say a favorite because it's difficult to say that that subject matter can be a favorite of anything, but it was very well done. What What were your thoughts on it? I think because we had the same story just done differently, obviously, because they didn't have it from her perspective, but we had the scene in Fall of a City. I thought it was it it sort of mirrored it pretty well because what what you do see of Iphigenia in when she does get her bit of dialogue um you know she's she's like in the carriage with her mother with Clytemnestra and she is she's like oh i she's talking about you know oh i'm i'm so excited i'm going to be married and this is amazing and then you know she gets there and she's like well where is he and they're like oh no no you know he's um He's getting ready. He's he's very excited. He's just, you know, you'll you'll see him soon. Um, you know, and then she's like, okay, and then she kind of like goes about her business. So I I liked how, um, it was kind of this cool thing where I felt like I could, what I was reading or listening to, was putting the inner monologue in what I was watching mm. in the yeah. show right so it's like I had the visual of the show having just watched it not too long ago but now I was able to put more of an inner monologue to that and it actually made the entire mm. thing much more powerful because if I was you know reading it from her perspective and then watching what was portrayed in front of me um, it made it a more rounded experience is how I'm gonna put that so it was very interesting to to 
have that kind of going on. Uh, the, the benefit is having watched the, the show, so I had something to imagine, so I didn't have to do all the, the heavy lifting myself. Um, yeah, again, you can't really say it's a favorite, but um, in terms of how well written was it, um, and did she capture the essence of the person she's trying to uh, write for, uh, A++, you know? Um, and this is why I love, you know, I know feminist retellings of Greek myth are, is like becoming like a very popular subgenre, and, and a lot of people are attempting it, but all I can say is like, it really shows that like you can characterize things and have something done really well when it's written by someone who would have had this experience, right? So we're, you know, we, we're sitting here like all these other retellings done by men, okay? No, none of them knew what it was like to be a freaking 16-year-old girl. Guess what? Natalie knew Natalie was a 16-year-old girl. I remember that feeling very well and oh my god i know so it's like so relatable right because like as i was reading it i was like i remember when i was 16 i probably would have reacted very similarly so it humanizes her for me even more um mm -hmm. and knowing that the author was someone who also knew and could capture these feelings that you know mm -hmm. a a person who was a 16 year old girl would understand i thought was really really well done um so no, I really, I really enjoyed. Uh, I mean, I just love the entire yeah. the, the the first half is just excellent. Um, and so yeah. one thing I kind of want to ask ahead for is of for the second half of the book. I'm sure you've peeked at the the names of the women who are. I actually haven't. Oh, okay. Well, I was gonna say okay. Well, then since you haven't, who are you hoping to hear from, and who are you? For the ones who probably are predictably um, either going to be or for the ones that um, will keep popping up who we've heard from so far, who are you uh, most excited to see their story continue? Well, I was looking forward to Helen, but we found out today that Helen does not have her own chapter. So that I'm going to be interested to see how she figures in other people's stories. Um, and I I tentatively am agreeing with you that not having her was a, a good choice, but I want to reserve judgments until I finish the whole book. So interested to see how Helen pops up in other places and whether this characterization of her as kind of selfish, self-obsessed holds through. Um, I am interested to see how the Trojan woman play out and actually, I want to hear more from Penelope as well. Those are good. I want to at least one more Penelope chapter. That would be that would be nice. No, we have several, and it's amazing. We have several, several fantastic. So, what are you, what are you most looking forward to revisiting? So, it's been a while since. Well, I haven't touched the physical book since I left home for Greece. Uh, but but I've listened to it a few times, and it, the listening experience is different because since you can't sort of look ahead, um, I oh, it's it's this mm -hmm. fun situation where I get to sort of hear, oh right, and this person's next, and then, um, and usually I'm listening to the book and I'm distracted and doing things, so it's like a half listening. But um, I'm really excited because I remember. Eris has a chapter. Oh. And I... Oh, that's going to be fun. Yeah. And I, from what I remember, she's really, like, 
as snotty as you would think about the, I can't believe I was not invited. This must be a mistake. Like, well, now that they've hurt me, I'm going to cause trouble. Ha ha ha. So, uh, I just remember it, it, it was sort of written in that vein. So I'm looking forward to revisiting Eris. I don't think it's a particularly long chapter, um, but but I it was a it was a fun one. And then I would say actually there were th- there were three other major ones that I want to uh highlight. We get a chapter with Cassandra and I don't remember anything yes. about it. So I'm happy to uh relive that. Mhm. I do remember there is a chapter on Clytemnestra, and it's one of the longer ones. And I remember loving it the first time because mm-hmm. it was just so well written. Um, but I think one of my favorites of the entire book uh, appears. I think she's one of the last two chapters. She might be the the second to last. We have a we have a longer chapter for Andromache, and I do vividly oh, remember nice. how that chapter goes because because of its placement as the last one and because of the way mm-hmm. Natalie reads it it's particularly harrowing it i mean i think the first time i read it it made me weep a bit and i never get weepy for books but i like had a stray tear come down my face i remember just the reaction being so unexpected um so i've read it twice i've listened to it countless times Mm -hmm. i'll put just that chapter on sometimes it's so powerful and it it really i remember it capturing the heartbreak of a mother Mm -hmm. yes because she talks about a cyanax being you know essentially like thrown off the walls but then she does go back with her greek captor and then she does actually bear another child but it's this very heart-wrenching split screen of talking about having lost a child with the man that she was deeply in love with to going from despising to not really liking but tolerating the father of the second child because Mm -hmm. of her love for the child and so it's this really interesting really interesting characterization so i'm really looking forward to it's a lot to look forward to yeah i'm I'm really looking forward to to hearing about about what you thought about each of those, but especially in Andromache. I, I don't know. Just like as a mother, I feel like you are going to have a lot to mm-hmm. say about the Andromache chapter because it's a longer one and it's like the second to last chapter. So she kind of is the major okay. character to wrap up the the, the entire novel because I think it, the, the very last one is like a short one with like Calliope essentially tying things in a mm-hmm. in a bow. But um, yeah, Andromache just... Uh, ooh, talk about a closer, man. She like comes in she hits you like a train so you definitely don't forget this novel and then you're like why did you do that to me natalie oh my gosh yeah (laughs) and spoil well not spoiler but but fun fact if you do want to listen to the audiobook if anyone chooses to go for the audiobook if you listen closely enough you might be able to hear natalie is actually crying as she reads this chapter certain segments of it so that's a little nugget if you choose to listen to the audiobook, which I highly recommend. I think I, I will go probably go back and do the audiobook after. Yeah, no, I, I, I suggest it. I don't I don't normally do audiobooks, but you're really selling this. Yeah, no, I, I, I will okay, so that's something I will mention. I I uh, I do like audiobooks a lot, um, but I promised myself that I would read this one, like physically read it first. And I was really happy that I did so mm-hmm. I could sort of come to my own thoughts and, and 
figure out my own emotion, what I think is happening, but then to go back and then listen to the audiobook immediately after for me was um, a really great experience because then I could mm-hmm. basically, I had my thoughts and then I had hers. Well, especially having the author read it yourself or read it herself. I feel like you probably get a lot of the the emotion as it was intended. Yeah. And that's one thing that I really wanted to know after I'd had a chance to sort of process and think about it myself. So uh, if you want to read this book, which I absolutely say you you should you should read this book. Um, everyone should read this book. But uh, yes, you should read it physically first yourself. But then yes, you should listen to the audiobook because it is fabulous. I don't have enough time in the world to just talk about how much I love this book. There's a reason it was shortlisted. And there there's so many little additional stories that we we don't have time to touch on. But I will say that there are there are a couple of women that I hadn't heard of and they're so far removed from most of the plot like the actual Trojan War, but you get all of the knock-on effects of all of these men leaving their wives and and families. And it, yeah, beautifully written, very well done. Highly recommended. I, I really had never heard of Theano, but then we get a Theano chapter and I was like, whoa, okay, she's actually kind of, not like important, um, but 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 she, she is a valuable voice to be heard. Because her husband was a traitor and like I definitely didn't remember that. And I was like, wait, she survived? And I was like, oh yeah, okay, so her husband was a traitor. So, um, yeah, there's some other... Um, I feel like there's some other women in chapters who are less known in the second half that you may know their name, but you don't know anything about them. I remember there's like a short chapter on like the more AI and I was like, I don't remember anything about this. So highly recommended for the first half and we'll be back next week with uh, the second exactly. half. And I'm very excited. Yay! Oh, I am so excited. <laughs> All right. See you next week, guys. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to leave us a review. And you can also follow us on social media at The Reading Party Podcast. If you'd like to leave us a book or movie suggestion, then email us at thereadingpartypod at gmail.com. See you next week. Mm